being a banker for 21 years almost, but... Uh, I was just curious and I really wanted to ask. If I'm not having an offer here, I'm going to get an offer somewhere else. So for somebody who does a little bit more, it's going to be waiting a long time. So people are just going to have to roll up their sleeves and dive in. The corporate world, uh, for four years as a CEO, brings about... That's uh, okay. It's, it's going to fuel you. Um, it's still, I think, fueling me to this day. Create value to this, uh, to this stage. It got me through the door because it's a pretty small group. I tried to make sense of it because there's so much information coming in and you don't know what's, what's relevant and what's not. I'm not interested in having this small probability of losing a whole lot of money. You need to be surrounded by other smart people. For the firm during the 2008 recession. Hello everyone, this is your host, Maura Maya. Welcome to another episode of the Finance Podcast. This show is a conversational exploration of stories, career development, ideas, methods, and strategies used by leading industry professionals. This is where I explore the professional journey of individuals who have successfully built careers in the financial industry. My guest this week is Daniel Dupont, currently a portfolio manager at Fidelity Investments, where he manages over $11 billion in equities across multiple funds for Canadian investors. Fidelity Investments is one of the largest privately held asset managers in the world, with trillions of dollars of assets under management. With the mission of building a better future for investors and help them stay ahead, Fidelity Investments in Canada offers investors and institutions a range of innovative and trusted investment solutions to reach their goals. Having joined Fidelity in 2001, Daniel Dupont now holds over 18 years of experience working for the firm. One of the funds he manages, Fidelity Canadian Large Cap Fund, was a 10-year Lipper Award winner for the Best Canadian Focused Equity Fund each year from 2012 to 2017. Daniel Dupont holds a Bachelor's of Commerce with Joint Honours in Finance and Economics from McGill University. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Daniel Dupont. So before we get into the details of your success, I would like to begin by asking you to give us an overview of what your career has been like. What steps did you take to be where you are today? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. This is a pleasure to be here. I hope we have a nice hour together. My, uh, my career is pretty simple. I've been with one company, so it's, uh, it's been fidelity all the way. I was interviewed in 2000 in the middle of the uh, tech bubble when uh, everybody wanted to work for an, an interesting company based out of Texas called Enron Corporation, one of the biggest frauds of all time. So that helped me a little bit. A lot of people interviewed there. A lot of people were hired out of uh, undergrad uh, in commerce at McGill to go work at Enron, um, which is a little uh, too bad for them. But it was good for me, because then less people <laughs> wanted to work in asset management. So Fidelity came on campus. And um, uh, I, I didn't do enough while I was in university to get noticed in terms of uh, filling my resume up, if you get what I mean. Um, I started an investment club, but just because I wanted to. Um, I wanted to invest my own money. The university would not let us invest our own money in a club that was based at the university. So I started an investment club, um, and that was a fun little experience. So that helped my resume. But outside of that, I, I wasn't the most sociable guy. Um, but when Fidelity came on campus, I was really, really excited. Um, and um, I just made sure that I stood out. 
So when everybody else was asking about you know, training and uh, teamwork and the culture, I went to uh, one of the presenters afterwards and I asked him a very specific investment question. Um, and um, I think he, it, it really stood out. And when I got to the interview, I, I saw that they recognized me. And uh, from there, the interview process was a little tough. Uh, 400 resumes for one position. Um, and luckily, uh, I was the one that, you know, that was still standing at the end. So grueling three rounds. Um, but frankly, I always kept an open mind. I wanted to make sure I had a job. So I interviewed with investment banking as well. That was also fairly tough. So I got a few offers in banking as well. But I really wanted to do asset management. Um, you know, big fan of Warren Buffett at the time, and still am, and, you know, Peter Lynch, which was a portfolio manager at Fidelity. So started at Fidelity as an analyst. Day one, um, was uh, told that I was going to cover Staples, that, um, you know, the training would be interesting, but if I could just, you know, ramp up pretty quickly, um, that would be better. So I met with Molson the next day. Um, so interviewed, I guess, you know, presided on uh, a meeting with Molson, which was still an in, in independent company at the time. And from there, it was um, just more and more a responsibility. Covered Staples for a few years, and then they gave me the gold fund to manage, a uh, billion dollars US, a global precious metals fund. I think I was 24 at the time. Um, and they just kept on, on piling responsibility onto me. And um, a few years later, I was uh, given the Canadian banks to analyze right before um, the financial crisis. So that was a very interesting period. Met with the bank CEOs pretty much every month to try to figure out what was going on and ultimately became a portfolio manager in 2009. Uh, again, an interesting period to be managing money. So it's been uh, just uh, more and more responsibility, um, which was um, a result of, I, I think, keeping my head down, just asking for more responsibility, never complaining, never asking for you know more money or more of this and more of that, just um, being noticed by how well I did the job, I guess. Great. Thank you for sharing that. And with that story, I'd like to know, what particularly drew you to the wealth management aspect of finance? What, why work in this industry? So my background is very different. I was raised on a farm, and um, I really liked the financial aspect of it. I didn't really like as much getting up at 5 a.m., but um, I picked up a book when I was uh, about 18, 17, 18, uh, about Warren Buffett. Because I read about him in the, in the paper, I thought this guy sounds interesting. I read that biography, then I read it again, and I realized, okay, now this is what I want to do for a living is manage money. And um, so, reading more and more, I ended up figuring out that um, being a portfolio manager was probably um, the, the the path I needed to to take. So I wanted to get there eventually. It's not easy to get an asset management job. Um, it's still hard today. It, today, there's a few more options, but they're still very tough. So you can do private equity. You can do venture, venture capital. Um, you can try to um, go into the, the structure of ETFs, which is a little different, but really fascinating, frankly, um, and, and really good jobs there as well. And mutual funds uh, is, still, is still, uh, still around. But obviously, as we know, passive investing um, is growing as a business, so the active share is uh, is coming down slowly, but uh, it's been a trend that's been going on for a while. So it's a little harder as a business to get into. I'd say the business is still a very good one, mostly in Canada, uh, but still globally. Um, 
So I'd say, um, you know, it's it's still a, an excellent business. But that's that's how I got interested in the in the industry. I've I've loved it from the beginning. I spent my my you know my evenings in university researching stocks, and that's still what I love today. So I'm really lucky to have found a passion uh, in life. Not many people do. I've realized that over the years. I thought it was natural. It was normal, but. It's not, um, and one that can give you a really good career and uh, you know fairly uh, lucrative, and one that you love. It's it's stressful, obviously. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of negatives, but frankly, the, the positives outweigh that. And so now we've talked about this industry, and you said that it's a very hard industry to get into. So, what are some abilities or qualities that you believe are asset to a successful asset management career? What should a young investor, a young grad, undergrad what qualities or uh, understandings of the wealth management should he really grasp to be able yeah. to have a successful career in the wealth uh, asset management industry? It's a good question. So people will not love to hear this first point, but I'd say like everything in life, there's a bit of luck involved. So you, what I would say is if you're going through interviews, uh, meeting people, and doesn't go as well as you would have liked, I'd say don't, don't um, um, be too depressed about it. Sometimes it's just a slight difference in personality. Sometimes it's just a happenstance that a particular firm is not looking for somebody with your exact skill set, um, these kinds of things. So I am um, I'm very realistic that, as I said earlier, there were 400 resumes for one position. And um, a big part of the reason why I got the job was luck in terms of um, the stock that they gave me to analyze, which was part of the last, last round of interviews, was a stock that uh, really... Um, uh, was easy for me to analyze because it was the kind of stock that I, I had um, a certain facility with, uh, a certain easiness with. Um, so it's all these little things. So I'd say, you know, first of all, don't take it all too seriously because there's a bit of luck involved. But I'd say the, the one, one thing you can focus on is um, discipline. So, you know, it's very hard in life to get motivated every day and to, you know, to get up and, and do the things that need to be done every single day. Even if you're passionate about something, there's going to be really tough days and tough weeks and even tough years, I'll tell you. Um, in this business, when you underperform for two years, you feel like you are really useless. Because, you know, a monkey would have beat you that year if you underperformed the market, which is, uh, you know, mentally, it's a really tough one to take. But if you keep at it, you, you stay with your discipline. Uh, when, once you're in the business and you manage money, it's important to stay with the process. So what really works for you? Are you a value investor? Are you a momentum investor? So play to your strengths. But overarching it all, it's discipline. Just um, keep at it. The same in school. It's, it's the same in every aspect of your life, really. You have to uh, work a little harder than the next person. And um, I'll tell you, it, motivation won't get you throughout through all of it. Um, you need to really be that person that has a bit more discipline than the next person, and then you'll, um, you'll go just a little farther. Well, thank you for that piece of advice. I think yep. that is a great, uh, great piece of advice. Um, so now that you're a portfolio manager at Fidelity, mm -hmm. uh, we'd like to know what are your tasks and what does your work consist of? You're, one of the you're working at one of the largest asset management institutions. So for those that maybe aren't aware, what do you do as a portfolio manager? So um, I manage money both um, in terms of uh, Canada and global. So I manage money for Canadian investors, but uh, that want to invest either in Canada for some of my portfolios or globally for some others. So um, it's mostly in, uh, in Canadian securities, 
So uh, every day I have to figure out if what I own in my funds is exactly what should be owned at this at this present moment. So look for new opportunities, maybe sell a stock, buy another one. But if you, you start from the beginning, once you, know, you manage a portfolio, you need to figure out what your process is, what you're good at. And uh, Fidelity has done a good job with that, with all of its portfolio managers. We start as analysts, we manage money in funds that are sector neutral, so we are um, uh, analyzing stocks and investing money, which are fairly different skills, frankly. But once you, you manage a diversified fund, it becomes a little harder because you have to figure out whether you want to own gold stocks or banks or staples or industrials uh, and, and all of them, all these different companies have different characteristics. So there's a lot to choose from. There's a lot of considerations. You also have to look at the fund from a holistic perspective, which is getting easier uh, every year because of the analytics behind um, everything we do. So we have very, very smart people that figure out Okay, what are the risks in these funds? What, what if we have a 1987 scenario where the stock market went down rapidly? What if we have a 94 scenario where uh, bond yields move rapidly? How would that impact your portfolio? So you have to look at it from a risk perspective as well. But generally every day, um, these days obviously it involves looking at what, the, the, what uh, new tweets came overnight. But um, <laughs> yes, we, uh, we live in a market that fluctuates uh, according to presidential tweets. Yeah, exactly. So you have to be aware of that. But you, you follow what every company in your fund is doing, but you also look for new ideas. You're always looking to improve the portfolio, um, invest in a company that is better and cheaper than, than the last best alternative in your fund. Okay, so you said looking for new investment opportunities, yeah. and I'm aware that you made an appearance in Bloomberg where you mentioned that it was getting harder for new investing ideas. Yeah. And then I looked into, I did some research and looked into your history, and you have this strategy. In 2012, you made an appearance. Uh, you were featured actually on Investment Executive, and you mentioned four topics that I'd like to touch upon. You yeah. talked about capital uh, preservation. You talked about investing in the highest quality companies. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned the infinite, to be infinitely patient on price. And yep. then your fourth point, which I found to be very interesting, was embracing your ignorance. That's right. So do you still follow the same strategy? Maybe you could elaborate on this. Well, I'm, first of all, I'm surprised you found something from 2012, uh, but uh, congratulations. Uh, well done. Yeah, the, these four points are um, they're the way that I simplified my process for people so they know what, I, what I'm doing every day when I manage their money. Um, and so that's how I've, I've brought it back to the essence. So yes, first of all, that's the overarching point is to, is to protect downside, is to make sure that we don't lose too much money when the market's going down. So in Q4 2018, for example, uh, my benchmark for my uh, Canadian funds was um, it was down 8% and the fund was actually up too. So if you can actually be up in a market that's down a decent amount, uh, that's, you know, that's the holy grail. But uh, the, typically when the market goes down, my downside captures how much I go down with the market is around uh, 20 to 30%. So if the market's going down 10%, I usually go down 2 to 3 So my structure has to be different, obviously because it's really, really, really hard to do, frankly, to be down 2-3% when the market's down 10, while still being up a decent amount when the market goes up and beating the market over time. You know, my, my job is to beat the market over time. Uh, it's, it's easy to be low beta and to not do that well 
uh, on upside. So uh, you have to balance all these things. So yes, uh, downside protection by investing in one quality companies, yes. Um, you need to have a balance sheet that's decent. You have to have a company that's well-managed. You have to have an industry that's not too cyclical. Um, so quality is balancing the three risks. If we go back decades, you know, Ben Graham came out with the three risks of investing in a stock. And I think these three risks are still, they're still true today. So the three risks are, val first of all, valuation risk. Is the stock way too expensive? Even if it's the best stock in the world, is it going to grow? So there's always a price you can pay that's too high for even the best business. So first, first risk is valuation. The other risk is balance sheet risk. Does this company have too much debt relative to what could be a normal cyclical, um, a normal cyclical downturn in its industry that could impact it massively? Um, so balance sheet risk. And the last one is operational risk. So is this company really cyclical? How do operations um, move relative to the economy? Is a normal amount of debt going to take this company down because it, we could have a um, you know, steeper than average slowdown in the economy, which would impact it hard? So these three things together, um, to me, are the three big risks, and I'm trying to buy quality that engulfs the three, these three risks in a balanced way, um, minimizing these three risks, obviously. Um, patience on price. Yes, extreme patience. Um, it is annoying to the analysts around here that I do say no a lot. When I buy a stock in my funds, uh, it should really be an exciting day for them because it's not going to happen every year. My funds have between 30 and 50 companies. So if I have a 30% turnover, that means 10 changes a year, less than, a less than one a month. So very low turnover. So when I buy a new stock, I'm very, very comfortable with the valuation, that's for sure. And finally, the one that you found interesting, uh, embracing my ignorance. Um, that basically means you're not trying to predict things that really, one, are hard, really, really hard to predict, and two, which we don't know what's, uh, what would be the impact on this, um, the stock market or particular stocks uh, in, in our fund. So for example, if you take um, political risk, if you take Donald Trump's election, if you tried to predict that, it would have been really, really hard, first of all. Second of all, even if you had predicted it, does it mean you would have had it right? Would you have said, well, if Donald Trump's gonna be elected, the market's gonna go straight up? I don't think you would have predicted that. So I think there's a lot of variables in the economy that are like that. Interest rates are one of them, um, uh, foreign exchange, um, inflation levels, uh, you know, all, all these uh, commodity prices, you know, oil prices, they're really, really difficult to predict. Unless you're at an extreme, then you take a position. Um, I would urge people to follow um, the writings. Unfortunately, he doesn't write as much anymore, but Jeremy Grantham at uh, GMO out of Boston writes, uh, has written a lot of really interesting pieces over the, year, over the years, and I, I really agree with his point that investing uh, is most important at the most extreme points. If you invest in oil and gas, uh, it's going to be very, very boring 90% of the time. It's going to be very difficult 90% of the time. But when the oil price gets to a really, really low level or really, really high level, the decisions become easier and it should show in your funds. So in the at the beginning of 2016, when the oil price was in the low 30s, I thought it was fairly, um, based on this principle, it was fairly easy having been patient and not uh, having invested heavily in oil and gas to significantly increase my weights there. 
So a lot of investing is actually just being patient and acknowledging that sometimes you will miss some moves because you've been too stingy on price. And that's part of the game. That's part of investing. You just have to be patient and acknowledge, okay, this is a really good company. I might never own it because it'll never get to the price I want to buy. There's a lot of ex examples over the years. You know, Thomson Reuters is a stock I, would, I thought I would never own. And then ultimately, um, they, they really screwed up on a new product offering. A few years ago, the stock went down to 13 times earnings. I couldn't believe it. And I, I bought a, as much as I could, literally as much as I could. I was, I was probably 25% of the volume for days and days and days, probably three or four weeks until the stock went up uh, a little bit. And I just thought, okay, that's enough. And, and the price is moving up enough. But if you are patient enough, at some point, the market will just scream at you to buy a particular stock. You just have to have the patience to do that. And frankly, there's very, very few people who do have that patience. Yeah, exactly. So I want to continue with, with this um, advice that you're giving to uh, young investors or individuals that want to uh, manage these funds and are looking for a career in this. Tying to this topic, with the current trade uh, tariffs, the negative interest rates, uh, we have seen negative uh, bond yields in Europe and Asia, and the Federal Reserve cutting interest rates in July. Now President Trump is asking the Fed for an aggressive rate-cutting campaign. Do you see any investing opportunities? Again, the same question. What should young investors be looking at or taking into consideration? Um, so those are all, yes, they're very... Um they're very good points. Those are very in-the-moment points, frankly. If you're a young investor and you're looking at where I want to go in my career or where should I invest, um, you know, do you really want to look at Donald Trump's latest tweets about cutting interest rates? Um, it's, it's interesting. But I, I think we have to look at things in a, in a broader perspective if we, if we want to think about the next three to four years. So yeah, the, the, Fed, so we're, the Fed point is, is an interesting one. So the Fed is cutting rates. Yet the uh, U.S. stock market is at an all-time high, practically. So that's an interesting um, that's an interesting point in time. It's happened in the past where market was really strong, but we were we were uh, we were cutting rates. Uh, sometimes it's worked out really well for the stock market. Sometimes it hasn't. We've gone through a very long cycle, frankly. Um, 2015 seems to have been a somewhat decent extension. Of, of the cycle, we had a slowdown and then things bounced back. We had the same in 98, where we had the Asian, Asian crisis and um, things stumbled a little bit in North America, but barely. So it's, uh, the question now is basically, is this cycle gonna keep going or are we at the end of a, of a ver uh, very long cycle, albeit a very um, modest one in terms of growth? Um, so I would say uh, just wait for, uh, wait for the evidence, be defensive, because we've never had as much, uh, as long a cycle as we have right now. Uh, so that um, that's in itself is interesting. But um, be careful out there. It's been a long cycle. Uh, rates are being cut. We've had an inverted yield curve. So history tells you, be careful. So you can believe in a longer cycle if you want. But frankly, I think that's slightly dangerous. So if you want to protect your capital, you should be nimble and look for how to invest when things move. But at this point, there's not a lot of cheap stocks out there. Uh, value has certainly been underperforming massively, but in terms of absolute cheapness, where you absolutely need to buy a stock, uh, I'm not feeling that right now. I used to. 
I've, I've, you know, I remember sitting at my desk in 09, in 2010, 11, 12, 13, and having that feeling where, oh my God, this stock has gotten to a price where I just can't help myself. I need to buy as much as I can. Uh, it, it's happened again in Q4 of 18. And that was a very interesting period, fascinating uh, one. I was sitting on about $4 billion of cash and um, I deployed about 1.1 of that. Uh, and frankly, if the stock market had kept going down, we would have, I would have bought a whole lot more. But things bounced back quickly. And then that feeling of uh, greed of, wow, this stock is so cheap, I need to own it, just disappeared. And now we're back to a fairly expensive all-around market. There's not much to be really excited about that discounts worst-case scenarios. So um, I have a lot of liquidity in my funds. Uh, some people find that interesting, that I have more than $3 billion in cash and cash equivalents. But that's how I've protected capital for people over time, and I think that's, uh, that's what the people who invest in my funds want. They've worked hard to save their money to, uh, you know, or, or built a business and sold it and now are investing and trying not to, to lose money. So that's, that's what they want. On the flip side also, in my view, that's the best way to compound money over time is not to lose in down periods. The compounding is significantly easier when, for example, in 2008, if you go down 50%, you need to be up 100 to get back to even. If, you, if you're down 20, well, all you need is 25%. Uh, up because you're down from 100 bucks to 80, and then from go back from 80 to 100, you just need to go up 25%. So that's how I've won a lot of awards over time is the, the idea that because I've lost a whole lot less, then it's such an easier um, uh, road to get back to even. So this again is an environment where I'm not finding a lot of uh, stocks that are making me greedy, where I absolutely need to own them. Um, so I would say. To, to young investors, there's a feeling that you're going to get one day where you'd absolutely need to own a stock because it's so cheap. And right now, maybe you can do that in really small cap stocks. I can invest in really small cap stocks in my funds. Obviously, I'm managing 11 billion, so I, I, it needs to be you know a billion market cap. Um, so maybe if you if you look in looking into small and mid cap and small and, and micro caps, you can have that feeling. But if you look at mid-caps and large-caps, I think it's going to be hard. But be patient. Yeah. It'll happen again. So I want to continue on this topic about being careful and about protection because you made an appearance on Bloomberg last month where you mentioned Are you that stalking me? <laughs> I did my research. <laughs> well I did done. my research. Well done. That you would abstain from investing in the oligopoly that is the Canadian banking industry and started purchasing gold. Yeah. Could you perhaps elaborate on the reasons why and how unusual it is, unusual it is, particularly in a large Canadian banking industry, yeah. to dodge the banking system and rather invest in a volatile commodity that can be very hard to predict? So could you perhaps elaborate on that? Very well said. It's true. It's very unorthodox. Um, banks are amazing. They're great businesses. It's an oligopoly in Canada, so um, they've had great returns over time. Return on equity has been mid-single, mid-double digits at least for a long time. And gold, you're right, it's a very volatile commodity. The, the companies that are looking for that commodity are typically really bad businesses. They tend to have really low return on capital. They tend to spend a lot of money in the ground trying to look for gold and usually don't find a whole lot of it. Uh, and so it's 
completely unorthodox. I just uh, believe that right now is the time to be a bit more defensive about the Canadian economy. We've had a really, really good stretch. You know, our, our twin economy is the Australian economy, which hasn't had a recession in 30 years. I mean, think about that. That's a long time. And in that time, the, the value of the housing stock has gone up massively. Uh, so has ours. Consumer indebtedness has gone up massively. So has ours. Um, since 2008, the U.S. has transformed itself. The financial system is significantly more secure. Consumers are significantly less indebted. Canada's different. Uh, we've done pretty much the opposite, where housing, the housing stock is worth a whole lot more, and the average consumer is very, very indebted. So if, uh, if the banks are trading at a normal multiple, I'm not interested in having this small probability of losing a whole lot of money in banks if and when the Canadian economy falters, and mostly the Canadian consumer falters. It's not, um, I don't think it's, it's an, an overwhelming probability, but I just don't want to be there. And the burden is on me to find other things to invest in and do just as well. Because you know, at the end of the day, banks are levered 20 to 1. There's $20 of assets on the Canadian bank's balance sheets for every dollar of equity that they have. So you don't need to be wrong very much for your earnings to go down quite a bit. I covered the banks and I covered gold as well. So I, I, I should know a little bit more than the average person uh, about those and um, hopefully uh, that's just not enough to be too dangerous about it. But um, gold, I didn't invest for practically 10 years after becoming a diversified portfolio manager. I just thought this was the exact right time to invest in the industry. Um, so I bought the um, I bought uh, the commodity itself. The the companies are really really bad, uh, but all of a sudden this opportunity came up um, um, in Barrick Gold. Barrick is the largest company in the industry. Uh, it merged with the what was the best run company in the industry, uh, and uh, Mike, Mike Bristow was a CEO and practically almost founder of uh, of Rangold. And then the moves that he did as CEO of Barrick quickly, transforming it into best of breed, owning the best gold trend in the world in Nevada, uh, and uh, the multiple then correcting back after the initial excitement about the company made me think that, you know what, I think this is the time to buy my first gold stock ever. I did own some royalty companies before, which are better businesses, but the pure gold explorer and producer, that was... That was the first one. But I, I think the time is right to be in that industry right now. But I'm not saying that this will be the case for many, many years. Um, we'll see what happens. But I'm, I, I do give myself the right to change my mind over the next few quarters, and, and we'll see what happens. So continuing on this topic of avoiding ownership of banks, I don't want to leave just yet. Um, to my understanding, and please correct me if I'm mistaken, but you avoided investing in uh, the ownership of Canadian banks, through, like you said, the high debt loads held by Canadians, consumers, as well as the pricey assets banking, uh, backing these bank loans. But you're willing to invest in uh, grocery stores and phone companies. Uh, considering them as better bets in protecting against the downside. Mm -hmm. So even in, in those um, industries, you're, they're targeting the same consumer that, mm -hmm. that have to worry about the same debt load. So is, why is it a better investment proposition for you? So that's a very valid point. If we have a recession that is consumer-led, it will impact the banks and it will impact everything else. Uh, discretionary purchases, 
even somewhat non-discretionary purchases uh, like your cable uh, bill and your phone bill. Uh, and we've seen it in past uh, recessions. People will finally look at their phone bill and try to really, like, you know, um, reduce that number to the to the lowest they can if they're a bit more um, if they're a bit more stuck uh, financially. Grocery shopping is a little bit similar. They'll try to go to the cheapest option in the store. So it's still somewhat cyclical, albeit in my view a little bit less. So. You're right. They would still be impacted a little bit um, by a recession or a significant slowdown. But I think given the current structure of the indebtedness of the Canadian consumer, I feel pretty good that a grocer would outperform a bank in in a consumer-led recession or consumer-led slowdown in Canada. Uh, But your point is valid. I don't think the grocers are going to go up if we have a recession. I don't think that uh, at all. I just think they're going to go down a whole lot less than the banks if the particular scenario that I'm envisioning happens. And I'm not saying it's, it's the biggest probability one, but in life, um, you know, you have to protect against those, those extreme events or the, the higher impact probabilities out there. I think um, uh, if I can, um, you know, just speak about a particular uh, author that, uh, that I like for a second, I think... Um, I think people should read Nassim Taleb. Uh, I think he's a great author. I think uh, it just uh, it's it's a it's it's a view of the investment world that people typically don't have. So the the best book to read from him would be Fooled by Randomness. And so if you need if you need help thinking about those smaller probability events that could have a bigger impact, I think it's an important aspect to investing. And I think it, this is probably the best resource to, to open your eyes to that. So you've actually answered one of my questions where I ask you if you could uh, maybe um, tell us what books to read or any yeah. advice on the, on the resources. But so I'd like to continue with that uh, with that train of thought mm-hmm. and go. And you mentioned Warren Buffett as being a very important mentor, somebody that you looked up to. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other mentors, any individuals who truly made an impact in your life or who taught you valuable lessons for the finance industry or your personal life as well? Anything that you'd like to share with us? I think the one, so um, I would tell people to go back and read uh, what Jeremy Grantham had to say, what Nassim Taleb had to say, uh, Warren, the, the annual letters by Warren Buffett are really important. Um, the other thing I would read that I think had the most impact on me is, uh, if you can find it, would be Margin of Safety uh, by Seth Klarman. Seth is a money manager based out of Boston. He runs the Baupost Group. Uh, and uh, he is the epitome of downside protection investing. He manages uh, several, I mean, uh, probably around $20 billion at this point. And uh, he's grown that from practically nothing with a very, very defensive positioning. And having years that were on a relative basis, not impressive at all when the S&P 500 was going up 25%, 20 to 25% every year at the end of the 90s, for example, but he's had very, very few negative years. And um, I think he manages money in the most defensive way. And um, I would read that. If you could find also his investor letters from the 90s, they're online somewhere, uh, pretty easy to find. So just look for Baupost Group uh, investor letters and uh, combine that with the annual letters of uh, Warren Buffett. And I think you have a very solid base for, for defensive investing. 
So I'd like to shift gears and um, as a way of wrapping up, uh, two, these two last questions. Yes. Um, is there a favorite challenge, any difficulty that you faced that really set stage for future successes or that later ended up having tremendous value, a difficult time, a difficult period, perhaps a difficult situation? Well, I'd say um, I feel blessed that um, I was raised in a very different environment. So I was raised on a dairy farm. And, um, you know, when I got to McGill, there's a whole lot of different people on campus. Um, So what I loved about McGill was that it made me realize that um, I can relate to pretty much everyone on a certain level. so there was really, really rich people, really, really poor people that got in through um, loans and uh, grants, et cetera, uh, people from around the world. It was a fantastic experience. And my uprising was somewhat difficult because we were working seven days a week um, in the summers, for example, even in the winter. So back from school, I would work uh, sometimes in the morning before school. Um, and some people have had it even harder than I have to get to McGill. So that, uh, that was an interesting aspect. But back to the discipline that I talked about earlier. If you've had difficulties in your life, I, I think it'll be easier. It's tough to figure out when you're in the moment. But now I look back, and it was a whole lot easier for me to have discipline relative to some other people. Um, it's just a fact of life that sometimes you're raised a certain way and for you, some things are natural, some things are not. I remember my first day, uh, first week at Fidelity, I came in on the Saturday morning to work because I was raised on a farm. You work seven days a week and I thought if I'm going to work with people, uh, every other hiree at Fidelity was from Hy-Vee League. So, you know, during training in that first week, I saw that everybody was from Princeton, Harvard, Stanford, and then I just freaked out. This little kid from Eastern Townships, raised on a farm, didn't really speak English until he was 12 years old. He's going to go against hard, these people from Harvard and Princeton and, and Yale. And um, on that first Saturday, I really, I honestly wondered what was going on because the office was empty. I thought, where are these people? There must be some holiday. I really just could not believe that there was no reason for me to be almost alone in the office. And then over the few next few weeks, I realized, you know what? I'm the only one that has the passion and the discipline to do this 100%. And um, I still have, you know, probably still have that chip on my shoulder. I, I, I've had it from the beginning. Um, this, you know, the imposter syndrome that, you know, pe- I would tell people, don't worry. It never goes away and it's okay. You feel like you're not proper for the job, that you can't really do the job as well as everybody else, that's okay. That means that you're somebody that's very competitive and you always doubt yourself. Don't worry about that. That's okay. It's, it's going to fuel you. Um, it's still, I think, fueling me to this day. But finding a way uh, of using the difficulties in your life and focusing all of that into discipline in, a, in an area where you have passion, I think that will take you all the way to where you want to go. I, this is a great wrap up. I was going to ask for any other suggestions or advice for uh, young, ambitious individuals to break into the wealth management industry or like break um, break into the finance, but I I don't think I could have said 
that any better or that is a great piece of advice. So thank you for that. You're welcome. And um, any closing remarks, anything you'd like to add on? Uh, well, I think we talked about pretty much everything there, there was to. I'd say, um, you know, it's a long road. You never know how you're going to react to things, where you're going to end up. It's very rare that people have one job like me. Um, it just happened that I got more and more responsibility, um, and uh, it was the place for me to stay for a long time. But I, I, I have a lot of friends that had different paths and uh, did just as well. Um, and if you start in one industry, you might end up in, in another. You never know where it'll all take you. But back to that discipline and that passion, uh, as long as you have that combination, uh, I think you'll, you'll find your way to, to happiness and you'll find your way to success. Thank you for your time. Thank you for a wonderful it's conversation. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, it was a great talking, great conversation. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening in to this episode. This was my conversation with Danielle Dupont. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. I know I did. Asset Manager at Fidelity Investments. What a crazy conversation. Remember that if you guys have any questions you'd like me to ask my guests, I'd be more than happy to ask them. You can send your questions on Instagram, follow the podcast page. Once again, thank you so much and remember to stay tuned.